0: Let's do this. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, welcome to the podcast series, HR Inside Out, demystifying HR and people management. I'm your host, Susan Ney, with a warm welcome to our guest today, Gwen Tetro. She's coming to us from the North Shore of Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome, Gwen. Well, hi,
1: Susan. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Looking very, very forward to our session today, and I've got lots of questions for you. But first, I'd like to talk a little bit about you, give a bit of about your background. So Gwen is a certified professional coach with a Master of Science degree in management. Now, she spent the bulk of her career as an HR professional in the financial services industry, where she coached senior business leaders and groups on leadership, organizational effectiveness, and strategic business planning also very active on social media and an award-winning blogger on HR, leadership trends, and of course, the various issues. Wynn has learned a lot about building, that is building relationships, building bridges, building alliances, and building credibility. She's also the author of Thicken It, Thick of It, sorry, <laughs> Mastering the Art of Leading from the Middle, winner of an international impact book award finalist in the Canadian Book Club Awards in 2021 and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what the outcome of that is congratulations this is Thank fabulous you very much. I love that we both started our careers in the mailroom mine was at BC Tel now tell us and yours with a major financial institute And we've both written about the critical importance of leadership. We have worked in various positions through the organizations that we've worked with and within our career, and we've both seen a lot. Um, We met at the North Shore Authors Gala, celebrating the North Shore Authors Collection for 2021. Now, if there's any authors out there also residing in the North Shore, this is a group that's supported by the libraries of the District of North Vancouver, the City of North Vancouver, and the District of West Vancouver, and I quote, um, inspires, supports, and celebrates the literary talent of North Shore authors by showcasing locally created content in the three North Shore libraries. And both of our books are available for uh, borrowing from those three libraries. Now, for Gwen's reading, she made the choice of sharing the opening poem of her book, And it absolutely caught my attention. I immediately followed up with you. And I really hope that you would say yes. And the fact that you're here today, that's exactly what you did. I am so excited that you're here. And I think that that poem would be an absolutely delightful way to start our time together with our listeners. And I don't know, is there a chance that you could share the why of your actually compiling the poem um, before you do that.
1: I'd be delighted.
0: Um, The poem
1: is called If I Ran the Zoo, with apologies to Dr. Seuss. Um, I wrote it one afternoon in 2013 while I was trying to find a topic for my next blog post. When I finished it, it occurred to me that what I'd written seemed like a pretty good blog post in itself. Um, And when it came time to write the book and include uh, much of the material from the blog, my publisher thought that to print the poem at the beginning of the book would set the tone for what comes after. Um, I, I kind of liked the idea, it was fun. And I also liked the notion of beginning with the end in mind, which is a phrase that we know that comes from Stephen Covey and really, This poem describes my ideal workplace. It's my vision for the future. One that may never come to fruition, but will always, at least for me, be something to strive for. So the poem goes like this. If I ran the zoo, with apologies to Dr. Seuss. If I ran the zoo, I'd begin with the view that my organization includes you and you all manner of folk, both women and men, all shapes and sizes, all cultures. And then I'd paint a big picture up there on the wall, a picture so clear it would dazzle, enthrall all those wonderful folk with their heads full of notions who want to commit with their hearts and emotions. If I ran the zoo, I would see to it too, what's important to me is important to you. And just to be sure, I'd turn it around so things that you value with me would resound. Then we'd roll up our sleeves and get down to work with genuine effort no one would shirk, with good conversations and tough ones as well. There'd be no need to shout or to curse or to yell. If I ran the zoo, there'd be elephants too, but not in the room because between me and you, a room with an elephant's crowded, I think. And after a while, the room starts to stink. And speaking of animals, there'd be octopi with tentacles reaching way up to the sky, crossing all kinds of boundaries and silos and such to change for the better the world we all touch. If I ran the zoo, I would hire people who would focus on making our customers too, feel glad that they know us, and want to come back. And we'd work to make sure there'd be nothing they'd lack. We'd be curious too, these folks in the zoo. We'd want to be knowing the why, what, and who of what happens around us and how it takes place. Because change is a creature we have to embrace. So that's what I'd do if I ran the zoo. There's more, but I'll turn it over to you with blank sheet of paper and pen in the ink. Tell me, how would you do it? What do you think?
0: And there it is. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I love beginning with the end in mind. Mm. And the what do you think? But we're going to talk about that further on the podcast Right. Move over, Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Well,
1: I don't think he has anything to fear
0: from me, really. (laughs) I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's chat more about your book. Now, I listened to the session that you recorded with Bonnie Wagner Stafford of Ingenium Books, your publisher. Yes. And the blog was, it was titled Blog to Book Case Study." If anyone's looking for it. Oh, and I've added the link. I just noticed that in the show notes to the podcast for the listeners, if anyone wants to listen themselves. It sounds that the journey in moving from being a popular blogger to an author was not necessarily an easy journey for you. And one that I certainly hope you found worth your effort and the fact that you've won an award already and are in line for perhaps winning more. Um, I, I think it has been worth your effort. What was your biggest learning in making the transition? Um, You talk about change and the impact of change in our work worlds. This must have been a really big one in yours. Hmm.
1: Well, it did have its moments. Um, The idea for writing the book uh, came after I wound down the blog. I stopped blogging because I thought I had said all the things that I had to say and the risk of Repeating myself was uh, rather high. <laughs> However, I thought I needed to do something that would tie it up neatly before I felt that I could move on. And that's when I was connected through a family member to Ingenium Books. At first, I thought, well, how hard can it be, you know, to take the material from my blog and make a book out of it? Um, it was harder than it looked and harder than it sounded. Um, it was hard because other than, than bringing closure to the blog, I hadn't given any thought to why I needed to write the book. And I wanted to have it be more than just something that would satisfy my own ego. So afterward, of course, and with a little help from my friends, it occurred to me that most of my writing Uh, was for people who lived and worked in the middle of their lives and in their organizations, mid-managers. I also noticed that there have been a lot of books written for top-level leaders, uh, but fewer for the majority of us who live and work in the middle. So finding this niche gave me a reason to go ahead and write the book. We did uh, use about 40% I think it was 40% of the material from the Bach blog and the remaining 60% was new writing so uh, so much for having said all I had to say <laughs> I hadn't quite finished yeah anyway after I had identified my reader and a purpose for the book the process um although not always smooth, certainly flowed a lot better. So in a nutshell, the hardest part and the biggest learning was in finding the who and the why for writing the book in the first place. Interesting. Yes.
0: So quite a journey. It was very interesting. Yes.
1: It was a it was a challenge, and it allowed my brain cell, my gray matter,
0: to um, get some exercise. And before we dig deeper into the actual content of the book, I did notice that your blog "You're Not the Boss of Me" um, was not your first; that you had started with the blog "Prissy Perfection." <laughs> And my North Shore author's reading was from the story in my book, Wrestling with Self-Doubt. That's the title of the story. When you responded to my note to you, you shared that you had two internal negative voices, one of whom you had named Prissy Perfection. So there has to be a story there. And I suspect also part of the journey in uh, transitioning from the blog to the creation of your book.
1: Yes. <laughs> Uh, Well, if I'm being really honest, um, I would have to put my hand up to admit that I have more than two (laughs) inner critics, Uh, but Prissy Perfection and Mordred, the funeral director, certainly head the board of directors in my particular psyche. Uh, They emerged while I was going through um, coaching training. Uh, we were asked to read the book, Taming Your Gremlin. I don't know if you've heard of yes, that. Yes, that's excellent. Yes, mm-hmm. by uh, Richard, Richard Carson, or Rick Carson, I think he's calling himself now. Uh, and then we had to identify and name our own gremlins. So Prissy and Mordred boldly stepped forward, <laughs> thinking they would be well rewarded for their efforts. However, Mr. Carson points out that just noticing our gremlins can sabotage their efforts to spoil our day, which is kind of a good trick. Uh, at the very least, the exercise provided a simple method for separating ourselves from our inner critics, uh, banning them to the corner, if you will. I don't always win. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, I'm able to recognize when they're playing uh, playing with me and um, and I, Have learned to ignore them. Prissy and mordred hate being ignored. By the way, Mm -hmm. it diminishes them, and that's the objective of the exercise. So that's how they came about.
0: And it's actually it's it's wonderful how we learn about how to tame those gremlins. And that is an excellent book. I'll actually add that to the show notes page for anyone Mm -hmm. who's interested in, in looking deeper. Um, and by ignoring them, it does enable us to move forward with these initiatives and have the courage and and uh create new for us. So well done. <laughs> now in the session with Bonnie, it was noted that at the end of each of the blogs, you would ask, What do you think? Mm-hmm. And I noticed in your book at the end of each chapter, you do the same. Except that you've added questions for your readers to reflect on. So can you talk a little bit about um, your thoughts on your, your purpose in asking? I think these are important questions, whether it's what do you think or the specific questions that you ask after someone's read about a particular topic. Right. Okay. Um, yes. Um,
1: mine is only one perspective. Uh, one set of experiences. In the many decades I have been alive, I have seen a lot, I have learned a lot, I have experienced a lot. I think this has allowed me to write a book that contains a certain level of practical wisdom. It does not make me an authority. And it is important to me to provide food for thought, without closing the door to discussion and possibility. I ask the question, what do you think? Because I want my readers to think about their own circumstances within the context of what they have read and choose the ideas that work for them. I want them to try things and also incorporate their own thoughts um, into their actions. To me, this is what learning is all about, and it is a big reason why I wrote the book is to instigate, not necessarily instigate, but encourage learning. Mm -hmm.
0: And those questions do um, encourage people to think about what they've just read and look at that in the context of their own experiences. So that that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to dig deep by going into some of the sections of your book that I highlighted when I was going through it. And for our listeners, this is a book that's fun, as you can tell from the poem at the beginning. It's very easy to read, and it's full of wisdom from someone who has lived um, in the middle and coped with all that occurs in that realm. So in the chapter, Changing the Narrative, You talk about the great debate of managing versus leading. I fully agree with you that both are required, of both managers and formal leaders. You write, if you're not sure when to do what, the simple rule of thumb is manage things, lead people. In other words, manage the processes, plans, time, expectations, files, and your own behavior. Such great insights. Do you have any stories to share? We, we typically come to these nuggets of wisdom through our own learning along the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I do have a story as it happens. Um, I once had a boss who was a stickler for punctuality. In fact, I would go as far as to say he was somewhat obsessed by it. Um, He was the manager of a department of uh, around 300 people, possibly more. And he was also someone who trusted no one and to whom control was very important. His concern over over, um, those he perceived as late comers to the office reached epic proportions when he instructed one of his assistant managers to stand outside the elevator with a clipboard on which they were to write the names of those who came in after 9 a.m. Oh my. (laughs) Oh my. On one particular occasion, I passed by the manager um, on elevator duty, standing with the clipboard at the ready. His name was Charlie. And at approximately 9.05 in the morning, I took a peek over his shoulder to see what he was writing, just as Mary Pickett was leaving the elevator and heading for her desk. Charlie had dutifully written down the time as 9.05, and opposite the time, he had written Girl with Green Sweater and Red Hair. (laughs) I said, Charlie, how are you going to be able to tell the boss who came off the elevator late if you don't know their names? And Charlie replied, I have no idea. I'm just doing what I was told. So in my experience, people do not respond favorably to efforts that place them in boxes. They might be clever enough to create illusions of compliance but a lot of time is wasted in trying to circumvent rules that don't make sense and serve no other purpose than to show obedience to a manager who has definitely got his emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) I think most of us know that the only person we can successfully manage is the one that looks back at us from the mirror in the morning. So it just makes good sense to concentrate on people and what they produce, help them achieve their goals and provide the resources they need to be successful. Trying to manage another person's behavior always seems to end badly. I think it's a fool's errand, really.
0: I love that. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. The stories of, of things that actually happen within our organizations are um, well, they make good books. They do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take us now to the chapter leading on purpose. And you share that understanding your values, purpose, mission, and vision will provide focus and structure to everything you do. And you ask questions. What matters to you? Which are your values? Why do you exist? Which is your purpose what do you do, which is your mission, and what does your future look like, which is your personal vision? Now, you're asking the questions from both the perspective of you, the individual, and those of the organization to which you're offering your skills and your talent. I have my own thoughts about why you do that, but I'm interested in in your telling us more. Mm Um, yes, I, I'm not suggesting
1: that in examining our own purpose, vision, mission, and values that we go down any deep existential rabbit holes. Um, I'm saying that as a middle leader, there's an opportunity to connect to the larger organization. First, by learning its purpose, vision, mission, and values, and then in that context, how you and your team, you as a middle leader in your team or department aligns with that. So in that context, what is your vision for how it will look when you're collectively delivering your best work? What is the purpose of your department? Why does it exist? What matters to you and your team? And who do you serve? How do you fit into the larger organization? You get some context Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what you do and who you serve. I think when we get clarity around those things, we're better able to anticipate not only our own needs, but also the needs of others and make the work more meaningful and certainly more focused. Of course, there's always the opportunity to examine our own personal purpose vision, mission, and values. Um, I think it's important work. And I also think that it's um, possibly another exercise, no less valuable to the, to the individual in terms of establishing alignment in our own lives with the work we do. But to some extent, uh, this kind of examination is an ongoing pursuit uh, for most of us that, only ends when we do.
0: Um, yeah. As I was listening to you, I was thinking the word alignment. Yes. Yeah. And and change happens and sometimes things that are outside our control, that alignment isn't there anymore. And yeah. so being cognizant of, of what's important to us um, and whether or not it's still there for us within the organization, I think, does help create the work environments Exactly, Like like your entry poem was talking about. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes, exactly.
0: I'm going to now take us to the chapter on transmission. And you note that, and I quote, leaders who engage in everyday conversations with those they lead invariably reveal something of themselves. And it takes them from the realm of boss to the more approachable place of boss who is also human. I recently did a podcast on the need for play and fun in our work environments, and I shared about a past boss who always dressed up in Halloween costume. He was otherwise quite a serious chap, and people were, I would say, almost frightened of him. And it was amazing how his dressing up on Halloween changed things. And it really did make him feel more human and more approachable. It is important. And obviously something that you too have observed in your work. Um, Can you give us an example? Well, um,
1: well, first of all, I have to say that a boss who dresses up at Halloween is not only showing his fun side, but also his vulnerable side
0: And that's something that takes a lot of courage. You you must have seen some of the costumes that he came to work in when you say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it it also earns a lot of respect. Um, To be honest, I don't have any examples quite that specific. But over the years, I've observed that um, those bosses both executive and middle level bosses who took the time to regularly spend a few moments chatting with people um, and sharing some of their personal stories tended to create a sense of camaraderie that spilled over into the work and made them more accessible and also cut through barriers between boss and employee, which makes the work generally flow better Um, I think it also makes the work environment much more pleasant to be in so it's not a bad thing
0: no I remember a vice president actually explaining what the imposter syndrome was all about and that, that one conversation completely changed my relationship with him that he was prepared to share with me his vulnerability so I agree with you Yes, it's important. So still in the chapter on transmission, you talk about the importance of maintaining curiosity. (laughs) You see it as a fundamental tool for exploration and call it the springboard to developing our ability to ask good questions. I ask you to take it from here and share more of your thinking on this. Okay. Um, In the book,
1: I include a quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, I think at a child's birth, if a mother could ask a fairy godmother to endow it with the most useful gift, that gift should be curiosity. Um, My own belief is that we are all born with the gift of curiosity. But over the course of our upbringing, we are often discouraged from using it. Um, There are a number of reasons for this. Uh, One being, we often worry that if we ask too many questions, we're somehow being nosy or intrusive. And that's not acceptable generally in polite society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There's a difference between curiosity and nosiness though, which I think centers around intent. If we're asking questions or seeking information that we intend, to use as a weapon of judgment or to gain leverage over someone else, then that to me um, is not curiosity, it's bad politics. Mm -hmm. Um, Curiosity is about learning and exploration. It's about asking questions that come from a genuine desire to know. And when we inject an element of curiosity, of inquiry into our work, there's a greater opportunity for growth and discovery. And we learn to ask good questions even when there may not be immediate answers, only possible ones. I think too that in allowing curiosity to have a role in the way we work, we're less likely to do things because that's the way we've always done them. Mm. In other words, Curiosity is an essential tool in driving change. It opens doors to understanding. And as such, change can be instigated not only at the top, but also from the middle. And that's what makes it so important.
0: It's almost a component of building trust, isn't it? Yes. You no. Know, just when somebody sees that you really truly are curious and that you want to know and want to understand better. Yes, um, and that sometimes takes time for someone to see that that is a genuine interest. So thank you. In the chapter on reception, you tell a story about being at a corporate breakfast. And I love this. Uh, I think it was really important. Now, the breakfast had been scheduled to provide an update on the organization's goals and challenges, and you were working as a personnel officer at the time. And you wrote that on his way through, the chairman stopped to chat with you and you introduced yourself. You know in the book that there are 35,000 employees employed worldwide, so it's a huge organization. And then when he's up on the podium, he mentioned you by name to the address that he gave to the group. You had reminded him of the importance of people to the organization. You also talked about how up to that point, you'd felt like a very small, insignificant part of the bank's very lofty and global goals. That all this changed with that one simple word and phrase in which the word was included, your name. It really doesn't take much. And these, as you say, he became real to you instead of this person, you know, who in the white tower or whatever, because he showed that you were real to him. And I too have been blessed with something different, but similar. And I, I remember to the bottom of my soul, how, how good that felt. Isn't it fabulous when that happens? (laughs) And it doesn't happen often enough. I hope that this is starting to change, that we're recognizing how much those huge but small um, recognitions, remembrances, um, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that this is happening more frequently, or are we still not very good at this. Um, That's a very good question. I'm not
1: sure I'm equipped to answer it with any degree of certainty. I do think, however, that many organizations, particularly large ones, have a tendency to overthink and occasionally overprogram this sort of thing until it somehow loses its sincerity. Uh, You know, like the the award programs that are meant to acknowledge individuals and help them feel important to the organization. Mm-hmm. They have good intentions, but they tend to lack spontaneity um, or heart. And that's what's required, I think, for a person to feel truly seen. It kind of gets back to the notion of managing people. You can't really dictate acknowledgement or generosity mm-hmm. or kindness. I think what you can do is make these things part of your operating values and principles of an organization. And if you're a middle leader, you can make acknowledgement part of the, your your own particular values. You can be a role model. You have that choice and opportunity. And w- You know, are we or our organizations getting better at this? I really don't know. Um, But I'd like to think so. What I do know is that it will always be a work in progress. Mm -hmm. And some people are going to be much better at it than others. Because, you know, we're people.
0: You make a good point. Because, of course, we wouldn't know. Because it's those ones that are spontaneous. Those ones that are somebody saying your name or acknowledging you um, and nobody else is around. Yes. And I I, I love, again, that encouragement to just make that part of who you are Mm -hmm. as an overseer of people and uh, knowing how important that is. Um, Thank you. We also, or you also, talk about mentoring moments, and I just did a podcast with Carolyn Cooper Cuit, I think is how she pronounces her name, of the Grand Connection. We did it on mentors, but I'd never heard the term mentoring moments, and you wrote about that in the chapter on working together. And you talked about these as individuals giving without expectation of return, other than the satisfaction of knowing that they've helped another struggling human being. Um, and it, it's interesting. I was just talking with a good friend, Gail Farrell of Sienna Consulting, who introduced me to the term a knowledge philanthropist. I, I'd never heard that term before. And I That's love an it. Interesting term. Cause of course we always think about philanthropy as being financial. Yes but philanthropy can also be of knowledge of what we have inside ourselves that we can give to others. I certainly see both as part of paying it forward. Um, And, and as a really important aspect of leadership, mentoring moments. Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience with these?
1: Sure. Um, For me, Mentoring moments are not always warm and fuzzy experiences. True. Um, (laughs) They are experiences that cause us to think and give us a chance to change. Um, In the early 1990s, I nearly lost my job. Uh, There was a lot of reorganization going on, and the HR division of the bank was not exempt. And our jobs were being redefined and we were all being interviewed for the new roles that came with that particular strategy. Uh, my interview was in my, it was in my own mind's eye, a mere formality because I was sitting in the HR chair at the time. And I felt quite confident that I would still be sitting in the chair when all the interviews were finished. It was a huge assumption and certainly arrogant of me to take the the prospect of my interview so lightly, yikes. Needless to say, the interview did not go well. And the upshot was that rather than recommend me as the best candidate for the new role, the interviewer recommended that my boss choose someone else instead. Ouch. Yikes. Mm Come the day I was summoned to the boss's office, Uh, he showed me the list of recommended candidates for what I thought was my job. And here comes the mentoring moment. He said something like, Well, I have this list. According to the interviewer, you aren't the best candidate. However, it's my choice. And frankly, I'd rather stick with the devil, I know. But if I were you, I'd be going back to school. And that was the end of the discussion. There were two things going on there that, in hindsight, constitute a mentoring moment. The first thing is that despite being described as the devil he knew, my boss was actually giving me a chance to do better.
0: Mm.
1: And secondly, he offered a suggestion as to how I might do that. hmm there were no more discussions about it, no checking in to talk about my plans. Okay. He had said all he had to say, and that was it. The rest was up to me. I could ignore it, I could complain about it, or I could do something about it. It was totally up to me. Luckily, I chose door number three and, uh, and went back to school. It was a good decision. It took several years and a lot of really hard work. But it is a time that I look back on um, as one of learning for me and certainly a lot of growth. And that's pretty satisfying. The point is, it may not have happened, but for that particular moment, Mm. when I came to a crossroad in my career, and my boss kept the door open for me. And I think that's what monitoring moments are all about. You have to. I think you also have to be aware of them. Make yourself aware of them. Sometimes they can go by and you miss them. Mm-hmm.
0: And you're right, sometimes they're not warm and fuzzy. As I'm listening to you, I <laughs> remember getting a phone call from a colleague. And he said, what the F have you done? And it took me back and I'm going, what? And it was like, in a, what the F? <clears throat> and he, he made me reflect on a decision I'd made. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was, that was it. There was no follow-up. It was just the time he took to make a phone call. And um, yeah, and that was a mentoring moment. I've never, never really thought of that. I still look back with it, not very proudly, but.
1: (laughs) And I'm certainly not proud of this story I've just told, but these things happen and human beings make mistakes and they get a little full of themselves sometimes. Um, And it's about
0: learning, isn't it? Yeah,
1: very much
0: so. so. It's, it's, and I think sometimes with the opportunities to learn, it sticks with us. Those are, those are the things that we'll never do again the same way because we we did make a mistake, or we maybe didn't do a good judgment, or didn't prepare, or made an assumption, or you know, yeah. we're we're a bit grandiose about ourselves, and <laughs> we're humans. You know, we all we all do it but it's about moving forward positively. Um, So thank you, um, I appreciate your your example. Your chapter on collaboration, you talk about feedback and you talk about what you term as constructive criticism. Um, I highlighted the sentence and I love this. So first, you must determine how your criticism might serve the person being criticized and to some extent improve the negative situation his or her behavior has created. This is brilliant. So encouraging us to take a moment to reflect on whether our criticism is truly intended to make things better, and what is our honest intent with that feedback is something I don't think we we do often enough. Mm -hmm. You call it putting, putting the constructive, into criticism. Again, can you share a little bit more about about this?
1: Uh, Well, first, I think that we get used to seeing two words together and use them regularly, even when they're not necessarily well represented. Mm -hmm. Um, The term constructive criticism is one of those groupings. Um, The word constructive helps to ease the sharp edges of the word criticism, Um, but if we really want to put constructive into our criticisms, I think we first have to examine our motives for criticizing in the first place. I don't know about you, but I've been guilty of lobbing criticism at people without first thinking about whether I'm doing it to serve them or myself. Um, In truth, at least in my own experience, criticism when given in this way is usually more about me than them. Hmm. So before launching into that kind of discussion, it's wiser to ask ourselves some simple questions. Like, why do I feel the need to criticize? Am I doing it because I'm angry or frustrated? Or am I doing it to make another person aware of how their actions, performance, or behavior is getting in the way of their progress, their progress? and possibly that of the team. In other words, who or what am I primarily concerned about? Mm -hmm. In offering criticism, what purpose will it serve? If it serves no more useful purpose than to make me feel better, then perhaps I have to rethink my approach. And finally, if I'm going to offer constructive criticism, am I prepared to listen to the response I get? Mm, And consider the possibility that I might not have all the information I need to make a judgment, or even that I'm wrong, heaven Mm -hmm. forbid. (laughs) I, I guess it's about going into these kinds of conversations with an open mind. It's a discipline, really, and not one that's easy to develop. But I think to be a good leader, it's one that must be developed in order to build relationships. And make learning and growth an active part of working away, and also to take the fear out of um, the notion of criticism in the first place. I know. We often see the word criticism, and we go, "Whoa."
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps I we uh, think that after reading your book. Every time, I'm going to catch myself. As soon as I'm just about to say, I'd like to offer some, and if I come (laughs) up with that term, I will catch myself. And so that's something that is a seed that you've planted certainly within me because I'm positive that in the years that I've overseen people, some of that constructive criticism probably didn't feel very constructive. Mm. Yeah. And reflecting back, if I'd asked myself the question, And again, as leaders, I think that's really important. It's like there's not much we can do, perhaps, to repair what we've done in the past, but we can work to do this better in the future. And I think that's where
1: progress for all of us. I think you know this notion of constructive criticism applies not only in the workplace but also within our communities and our families. And perhaps our families would be a, a lot um, happier um, if we use if we actually step back from from criticizing um, before we thought about what we were about to say
0: and that's what that's what i love about leadership is that really all that we've talked about is so relevant in every aspect of our lives, whether you're, you know, dealing with family members or sports teams. Um, So good point, you know, with constructive criticism. Um, Yeah, don't ask my daughter because I'm sure she'll give you, she'll give you a few examples that would make me blush.
1: Well, I have a few family members who would, who would not, Um, who would be aligned with that as well.
0: Another quote in your book, presenting a problem without considering a solution is not supporting or driving change. It is simply complaining. Tell us more, please. Oh, that sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? No, actually, I don't think so. Um, Because I know I had a boss who said, please don't come to me with just the problem. Mm-hmm. Come, to me with, come to me with your thoughts on how this could be resolved. Yes. And now that I know that there's a term that's um, um, mentoring moment, um, I realized that that's exactly what I was being provided, as a mentoring yes. moment. And yeah. it was huge. It, it completely changed how I worked with bosses for the rest of my career. Indeed. Well, I'm not suggesting that when faced
1: with a problem, um, you have to have a solution before you go to your boss about it because otherwise, what would be the point? What I am saying is that before presenting a problem to others, you need to be prepared to participate in getting to resolution. Um, To tell them how you see the problem and what you have tried to resolve it or tell them how you see the problem and ask for more information. Offer an alternative if you have one. Otherwise it becomes a game of past the problem, Mm -hmm. which kind of looks like this. You have a problem or are unhappy with something, you take it to someone else, possibly your boss, maybe another team member. You give your problem to the other person without benefit of any constructive thought, Except perhaps how the situation impacts you or your team and you leave it with them. The other person, if unsuspecting, can, can easily end up with your problem on his or her list of things to do. Mm-hmm. It's not helpful to either party and does nothing to help build relationships and alliances with others. Problem solving is everyone's job. And I think when we participate in finding solutions, even if it means having difficult conversations, it bring it builds stronger relationships and certainly uh, credibility.
0: I guess you'd you'd also get the diversity of views, right? Yes, that's that, 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 that old word, word synergy of putting a number of brains on trying to find that solution. Mm-hmm. I just I thought that was important to note in your book. You also talk a lot about change and the, the, the attitude that we have towards change. And I'm moving to the chapter building support in your book. Um, and I, I'm going to pull another quote. In your effort to affect change as a leader in your organization, I know that your attitude toward it And the challenges you are going to face together will be absorbed like a thirsty sponge by those that you lead if you grumble they will grumble if you doubt they will doubt it's as simple as that i have to share with you that my gremlins those little inner negative voices they were just doing a good old dance in my head Because as, as we know, it's, I know it was an area that I could have done better. Um, certainly lots of decisions that I had a hard time supporting. And you offer some really good guidance about there are lots of changes that we will end up in comp- coming across in our, in our years of working that are difficult to support. And, of course, the input that we provide isn't always incorporated but that once a decision is made, it is important that those are supported um, and that as leaders, we guide our teams through implementations of the decisions. Is it only my internal voice that's been screaming at me or is this something that um, we could be doing better at as leaders?
1: Well, first of all, I defy anyone to stand up and say they've not allowed their own negative thoughts to color their attitudes. Thank you. <laughs> we're all human beings, after all, and it's likely that we could all do better. You're not alone, I assure you. In fact, you and I are in good company with each other, for sure. <laughs> the point is, when we're in charge of a group of others, especially during a major change, emotions tend to run high. hmm And if we want to affect change and gain acceptance for it, those who lead the change or the charge, however you wish to look at it, will be under scrutiny, close scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So the face you put on it as a leader will more likely, more than likely be the face others adopt because like it or not, you become the barometer for change. And through your attitude, you can convey your feelings about the likelihood that this change you're leading people through is going to result in something better Mm -hmm. or not. So if you have negative feelings yourself about change, I always think it's a good idea to deal with them first, come to terms with what's happening and find a new perspective. Mm -hmm. And do it out of earshot of those you need. It's not easy
0: but I think it's an important thing to do. I like your suggestion there because of course our body language can communicate hugely especially if what we're saying and what we are demonstrating through our, our facial feet, you know, movements and Our stance isn't in alignment. People will listen to the body language, Mm -hmm. not the words. Yes. So, so getting that under control before um, is that's important. Yes. And it's
1: really, it's really quite difficult because Mm -hmm. we often aren't aware of our body language, and while we might be saying the right words, uh, our body can be telling an entirely different story. So trying to get a grip on that is is quite a challenge.
0: Well, especially where you've been working to build trust. And so people are watching you very closely, you know, and if you've allowed yourself to be more vulnerable, then yeah, that's gonna be really important. Mm-hmm. Because so many of those change initiatives fail or, or, or are quite challenged and that's probably, large part is people really not buying in and not changing their attitude and sending those mixed messages and so the culture before which is strong because it's been there uh, can be a big tug of war
1: no indeed
0: And, and certainly in my experience you write as a middle leader you are asked to believe in your own abilities the potential and ability of those that you work with and work with you, and in the value and viability of the vision that you hold, even at times when that vision seems unlikely enough to be attainable. So in this context, it's really a lot about self-confidence and the importance of that, about believing in yourself because in your heart, you know that you can. So it's another attitude thing. I call it daring to soar and you say that at times that it, it does take a leap of faith. And I know from reading your book that that's been your story of needing to take a leap of faith. And that we do grow from our circumstances that are too frequently beyond our control. If we choose to do so. And my book is very much about don't be the victim. Um, that's a choice that you can make. hmm you took the leap of faith and you wrote a book. Can we look forward to another one? <laughs>
1: well, well, I'm still getting over the idea that I've managed to write this book, um, let alone think about, writing, about another, uh, writing another one. So perhaps it's safe to say that I'm still in the throes of experiencing this particular leap of faith, um, although I, I'm not ruling anything out. Um, I'd like to think there's another book in me, who knows? Uh, It it really depends on whether I believe what I write will serve a useful purpose. That will be an important factor.
0: Well, I'm sure hoping that you do. You recently posted on LinkedIn in your and I'll follow you anywhere list, a Mm -hmm. summary of what you would want from a leader, if you were facing major change, the list resonated with me and I was gonna read it, but I'm gonna ask you to because they're all incredibly pertinent points. Okay. All right. So um,
1: it looks like there are 13 of them, so I'm not sure. (laughs) All (laughs) 13, lucky lucky 13. 13. I don't really know that that's a good number, but anyway. So here we go. Uh, Paint a picture of the future that includes me. Give me direction when I need it and freedom when I've earned it. Help me learn new things and be better than I was before. Ask for my opinion and then really listen when I give it. Expect more from me than I expect from myself. Trust me first, laugh at yourself and with me. Give me the straight goods about how I'm doing. Live by the rules you set for me. Help me to celebrate my successes. Help me to learn from my failures. Show me your courage and your confidence. And number 13 is the most important one to me. Show me
0: your humanity. I love it. Wow. So we've bookended. We started with this incredible poem. And you continue to share, because that was on LinkedIn. And believe me, I'd follow you anywhere. <laughs> oh. Well, I, sh- but, um... I, sh- I sure hope that you write, you continue to write, whether it's that you continue with your blog or that you uh, savor the success of this book and uh, start gathering ideas for the next one. For our (laughs) listeners, (laughs) I think you can understand why I absolutely had to connect with Gwen and to share her book with you and to share her with you. So her book is an excellent resource for you on your own leadership journeys. It's called, again, in the thick of it, mastering the art of leading from the middle, available on Amazon, and I noticed in a, actually in a number of the local bookstores as well, so you don't actually have to order it online. When any last thoughts, I love to call them nuggets uh, for our listeners before we bring the podcast to a close.
1: Um, I only have this. In business, we talk a lot about hard skills versus soft skills. Traditionally, the soft skills have been viewed as less important, even easier to execute. Well, by now, most of us know that that's simply not true. Management is more often about the development and execution of hard skills. Leadership is about mastering the soft skills, or human skills, as Simon Sinek likes to call them which are harder, a lot harder, because they are more nuanced. There are no black and white answers to the issues involving leadership of human beings. We aren't always going to get it right. So I guess my final thought on this subject is, or perhaps this little piece of advice, is to be as gentle with yourself as you would be with those you lead. There's a lot to learn. And frankly, while that learning has a beginning, it doesn't really have an end. If you doubt your ability to lead well, you're in good company, but just know that you are good enough and you can do it.
0: Beautiful. We both hope that you have found today's session interesting and informative. I will be back again next week. I hope you will join me again as we both encourage you to, you guessed it, dare to soar because we believe that you can. It is Gwen and Susan signing out. Thank you very much for having me. Pick up her book. It is a fabulous read. Take care, everyone. It's time for us to fly. Have a good evening. Bye. Bye. Well, we've reached our destination for today. Time to lower those wheels and prepare for landing. Thank you for joining me. If I said something that resonated with you, please subscribe to the podcast and to share it with others. It would be awesome if you also took the time to provide a review, whatever your favorite social media sites are. If you have a question or an area that you hope I'll cover in a future session, please send me a note either to my website, www.effectingchangefromwithin.com or to my email, susangeney at gmail.com. I look forward to our next time together. In the meantime, soar high. I believe you can. Susan signing off. Thanks again for joining me.